everybody and welcome back to blockchain won't save the world it's another edition of students react to blockchain and this time we've got a wonderful group of students from carnegie mellon university in pittsburgh pennsylvania go penguins and we're going to go through a number of different projects from cardano to energy web to a couple of proprietary ones that you guys might not have heard of yet so i'm really excited to jump into it abhishek's going to kick us off abhishek i believe you're going to take us through cardano let's open up the show all right, awesome. Thank you so much for introducing me and I'm uh, very excited to be here on the show. So um, I want to start off just uh, a little bit about my background. I am a junior studying electrical and computer engineering here at Carnegie Mellon University and I've been interested in blockchain and crypto for a while now. Um, actually, it started off when I was um, in high school and I organized a hackathon with a lead sponsor being a cryptocurrency company. So that really got me into the space. And since then, I've just been learning a lot more about it. So today I want to talk a little bit about Cardano. It's a very popular cryptocurrency these days, so it uh, should be pretty familiar. But for those of you who don't know, um, it's a smart contracts platform uh, with the cryptocurrency token ADA, if you want to look it up. It was pioneered in 2017 by Charles Hoskinson. He was a co-founder of Ethereum, actually. And they were one of the earliest adopters of proof of stake, which is a consensus protocol different than proof of work, which Bitcoin and Ethereum currently use. And it's designed to be a lot faster as well as a lot more eco-friendly. And Cardano in particular, it runs on an ideology of uh, extreme thoroughness whenever they put out anything. So a lot of the other companies that are out there, they'll uh, have like a lot of like a fail fast approach, right? They try things out and they keep on improving bit by bit. Um, Cardano's idea is that they want to do all of the relevant research first, make sure that it's vetted properly, um, like looked through, and then then push out things slowly and steadily. They actually submit a bunch of academic peer-reviewed papers for all of the work that they do, and they have over 90 peer-reviewed papers currently. I want to just explain like what its purpose is and how it compares to its main competitor, Ethereum. Cardano is built as a smart contracts platform. The biggest smart contracts platform is obviously Ethereum at the moment. But Cardano is built upon the idea that just because Ethereum came first and it's more adopted right now, doesn't mean that it's doing everything in the optimal way. And there's got to be some improvements that need to be made that will help take this idea of smart contracts to the next level entirely so that it can be feasible to use in day-to-day -day life without being extremely costly or bad for the environment. It started off with this core idea or this core technology that it uses, which is the Ouroboros protocol. And it's a provably secure and math mathematically verifiable consensus mechanism uh, that drives its proof of stake. And um, compared to Ethereum, Ethereum actually is currently using proof of work, which involves lots of different calculations in order to solve a puzzle and create new blocks. And that's how Ethereum is created, which is extremely bad for the environment. And they're currently also working on moving to proof of stake, but Cardano is ahead of the game and they have the papers to back it up as well. Another key difference is the fact that uh, Ethereum actually has an infinite supply. So 
as blocks are mined in Ethereum, more and more Ethereum can be made, but Cardano has a fixed supply at 45 billion. So currently more Cardano is being uh, created, but eventually when it reaches its cap of 45 billion, no more Cardano can be made and um, it's kind of set. So one thing when you're looking at it from a value perspective, um, the fact that the supply is limited means that as demand grows, you know that the value of the coin itself will also grow. So if you're interested in the space as more of an investor or someone who's looking to park their coins or park their money, that's something very important to look into. The other thing is that the market cap itself, since Ethereum was adopted a lot earlier, it's actually a lot smaller for Cardano than it is for Ethereum, which means that now is a great time to get involved. Actually, recently, because Cardano and Ethereum are kind of rivals, uh, Cardano has, its price has kind of stayed stagnant while Ethereum has gone up, which means it's a great time that you could buy, especially if you think that the smart contract space as a whole is going to go up in general. One of the, the things that really speaks to me in terms of Cardano is the transaction fee structure. So with Ethereum, you find that a lot of times people are unable to transact quickly or effectively because the fees have just gone through the roof. And Cardano aims to really um, have a more simplified structure for fees and their fees currently are much lower than those on the Ethereum network, which proves as like fuel for this ecosystem to take off. Um, they basically have two parameters, A and B, and the third parameter is the size of your transaction in bytes. And these three parameters basically govern how much you're going to be paying on Cardano to get any sort of transaction done. So overall, pretty simple uh, not too complex. There's no um, crazy gas or anything like that, just straightforward formula. And it can make it a lot easier to guess how much you're going to have to pay in order to get things done. The other big thing I want to touch upon is that Cardano is a lot newer than Ethereum. And because of that, it's still in the works. So they actually launched one of their biggest updates recently in the Alonzo fork of Cardano, and that let their smart contracts actually go live. So um, before that, couldn't actually use the smart contracts, one of the defining features of Cardano. But very recently, these smart contracts have gone live, and you can actually program and build contracts and transactions on the Cardano network, which is like basically what it's meant for. Um, and they have a little bit of a different structure in terms of their um, actual smart contracts. They split them up into two categories. Um, one that is focused on transacting money, and then the other that's more on just building contracts for like organizations or anything in general. So um, you can use different languages that are more specified to these specific areas, and it allows you to have a little bit more flexibility and uh, specificity in terms of the application that you have for your contract. And then the final thing that I really want to talk about here is the community. So there are three main organizations that run the Cardano community. The first is the Cardano Foundation. The second is uh, Emergo. And then the third is IOHK. So the first Cardano, the Cardano Foundation, they are the legal custodian of the um, actual protocol that governs Cardano. And they're basically more focused on the external um, appearance and branding of Cardano as a whole. They're involved in driving adoption, partnering with different community members, other blockchain uh, projects in order to 
uh, get them onto the Cardano platform. And they've done a lot for the community as a whole. Um, and that can really be seen in the meteoric rise of the Cardano price over the past year. Um, the second is uh, Emergo, which is more of the for-profit branch of Cardano. So they're working with different companies and finding ways that they can create businesses on the Cardano network. Um, they have branches in Singapore, Japan, the US, India, Indonesia. They help companies with R&D um, and they like incubate different commercial opportunities in the Cardano network. So for people who are trying to build their businesses, there's uh, a way to get involved on that end as well. And then finally, we have IOHK, it's uh, Input Output of Hong Kong. And this was a um, organization that was also started by Charles Hoskinson, the founder of Cardano. And this is basically like the tech and engineering side of the company. Uh, they help build cryptocurrencies for academic institutions, uh, for government entities, for like different enterprises as well. And they, they basically like do the, the heavy lifting on the tech side. So these three components and um, the community as a whole of the people who are like involved is just really, really strong and it's growing rapidly every single day. So that, that has got me invested into to Cardano and excited for what's next. Nice. Thanks for that, Abhishek. And clearly a lot to cover within that, right? So it's, it's gone from being a cryptocurrency platform defending itself based on proof of stake peer-reviewed and i know we're among academics here so that's that's an interesting approach to say that we're not just going to be open source we're also going to deliberately seek out peer review for the content we create create papers it's very it's very interesting that there's a lot of quality and integrity between what he tries to do um, full disclosure anyone listening in this is not investment advice this is not um which tokens next going to the moon but there is an investment component to all of these you know anywhere there's a token somebody's going to look at how do we think about the value of that? Is it inflationary, deflationary, limited supply or unlimited supply? Um, how does it compare? I enjoyed the contrast with Ethereum there, Abhishek. It was a nice nice trade-off. Is there anything that concerns you around Cardano going forward? Anything else that you'd like to know more about that, that you haven't found out yet or that you're curious to know more on? Personally, I want to see how their, like their smart contracts are fairly new, right? And I want to see how that evolves. And my biggest concern would be um, adoption, right? So we do have these parts of the community who are um, pushing for adoption in Cardano, but I think the, the biggest challenge would be to get people who are using Ethereum smart contracts to give Cardano smart contracts a try. Um, and I want to see how they end up doing that. Um, on a yeah, I had a question uh, about that. So how do you, as a developer, right, all of the background information created, how, as a developer, how do you get started with Cardano? if you've done like uh, smart contract development, like Ethereum or Solana? I can actually, so I'll tell you where I started looking. Cardano itself has a, uh, like a site for it, developers.cardano.org, and they have the docs for their smart contracts there. So you can start reading into that and start getting like the base knowledge of how to get involved with um, smart contracts on Cardano. Um, it's not exactly like Solidity, like you would find on Ethereum, but, uh, definitely the the details are out there. That's a really good consideration, actually, is as, as you're looking across a number of these blockchains, there's different considerations for, as a developer, do, how close are the languages um, to, to what I've been trained in, whether that's Java, whether that's C, um, you know, Rust, Solidity, um, whether it's a proprietary language that's been created specifically for that blockchain, Golang. There's lots and lots of diff different 
languages that different blockchains and smart contracts are being programmed in. And the user experience of that is complicated. There are some layer ones that are also going into allowing you to write on multiple different types of programming language to be able to initiate smart contracts or to build apps, which I think ultimately has got to be the direction of travel is to be the more languages that you can accept to enable you to interact with those, those platforms and protocols, the more accessible it's going to be. So thank you for that, Abhishek. I'm going to jump straight over to Gokul. And Gokul, I believe you're going to tee us up with Energy Web. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So right, I'll just start with a brief background of my, myself. So I'm not a programmer. So I'm actually an energy engineer. I'm doing my master's in energy science, technology, and policy. And uh, what got me interested is the impact this could have on energy as well. So uh, I'll just start right off with like uh, our plant is facing one of the greatest threats of its time. And like uh, climate change is actually a reality right now and something that we see in news every day. So I would like to like explore a tool which would actually um, help us to traverse this um, adverse scenario. So low ca carbon electricity seems like the future and uh, that is something going on right now. And this is a trend that we can see in the electricity grids because I would like to give you a brief background about the grids before I talk about energy web. So uh, we are moving on to a more distributed system right now. So we have consumers coming in as prosumers who are generating electricity and selling it to the grid as well. So that's where like a token or, or a tool like Energy Web would come into play. Um, so I would like to say that uh, the utilities and the energy industry are really hard customers. So they don't like to ch like change so much. So it's really hard to make them like adopt a tool or blockchain as such in general. So what, what I see in Energy Web is that uh, there are a lot of team members who are like uh, really good with energy and there are engineers who, are, who have worked in the energy sector as well. So that's how like um, uh, they're getting more adopted in the industry because they're having these connections. And um, it's really hard to convince a major like Shell to adopt blockchain because uh, they won't actually do it unless there's uh, like proper backing and like proper uh, professionals behind it. Um, so coming on to the technology, um, let me just uh, pull up a few numbers here. So what I found is that there'll be around 3.5 billion internet connected DERs by 2030. So this is actually a really big market. And I see that there is around $830 billion investment in DERs and around 7 trillion on electric vehicles. So what this would mean is that the consumers would actually be the biggest investors in the energy sector rather than just the utilities. And that's why we need to be really careful about like what tools we use for this transformation. So uh, Energy Web basically is a proof of authority based network. They have like multiple tools to like mention a few. They have Energy Web Chain, which is the basic uh, building block of this uh, of Energy Web. And they also do have like um, other tools which help the customers and the utilities integrate. So basically the idea is to create like digital identities for the consumers because most of the times the utilities don't know like uh, what exists at the customer end. So they actually need to get an idea and this can be done only from the consumer side. So basically NG Web would uh, be using some applications so that consumers like uh, us can actually integrate more onto the grid by sending data about like what systems exist at our side, like solar, wind, or like any energy storage system that we have. And this would actually help us build a good uh, energy market. That's what I would think. 
so the token that energy web uses is the ewt which is the energy web token and uh, basically the gas fee is uh, paid uh, using ethereum uh, eth and also um, energy web is right now listed in a few exchanges um, even though uh, i think it doesn't have like a sec author like, uh, authorization uh, it is actually a swiss company uh, it has the swiss um, regulatory authorization and also is listed on a few exchanges which are accessible from the us as well so it, you can actually buy energy web tokens so i feel that um, it has a really bright future because of the integration with the utilities and uh, the util utilities coming in as the like the authorities that are in the permission part of the uh, network and i feel that this is a good way to transition onto the future of uh, zero carbon Love that from you, Gokul. Thank you very much indeed. And again, you can definitely see the energy, the energy transition being a really important point, both in terms of how are we sourcing renewable energy, how are we proving that we've generated renewable energy, how do we interact with not just prosumers, but also um, sources, storage of energy, whether that's in electric vehicles, whether that's in batteries, and how do we create that virtual power plant as well? And the the, the, the tokenization and the the reconciliation between all of those parties is, is super important. And being able to have infrastructure that's not owned by one particular energy company versus another, something that's interoperable is super important. So some really good points raised there. I am going to give a shout out to Shell and blockchain because Sabine Brink, who's been on the show on a previous episode of the Netherlands episode, oh. Shell does have their own blockchain team. They've got some super talented individuals. So as an energy company, definitely they've got some blockchain chops. So don't worry about that. Um, but more broadly, the point you were making is that actually the utilities are not typically known to be early adopters and highly innovative when it comes to technology, consumer-facing technology or, or, or B2B. So I think a point well made. Next, we have Naveed. Naveed, you're going to talk to us about Chainalysis. Yeah, hi. Um, so I'm a master of science in information technology. Um, I'm focused in privacy engineering. Um, so it's only natural that I chose Chain Analysis, which is a company which is focused towards blockchain surveillance in addition to the other products. So chain analysis is a platform that helps governments, financial institutions, and other groups lessen the threat of their, of cyber crimes in their dealings with cryptocurrencies. Um, the co-founder and CEO of chain analysis is actually Michael Groneger, who co-founded the cryptocurrency exchange Kraken before leaving in 2015 to launch chain analysis. Um, the other co-founder is Jonathan Levin who has an economics degree from Oxford and has previously published a lot of research on virtual currencies. So chain analysis provides data, software, um, services, and research to government agencies, financial institutions, insurance companies, and cybersecurity companies in over 60 countries. Um, their platform basically focuses on um, investigation, compliance, and risk management. So it basically helps grow consumer access to cryptocurrency safely. And the customers that if they service include Bitstamp, Gemini, Corbett, Europol, et cetera. Focusing on why government agencies are so heavily invested in what chain analysis does, because it helps, it helps you visualize the flow of funds um, as to where your cryptocurrency funds are going, um, helps you follow the money as well, and share your findings in basically various formats. And it also has this curated open source intelligence, which helps you scrape information from, um, from clear and dark net forums, which helps governments crack down on ransomware, which is a great, which is a great thing, um, seeing as how um, ransomware is a new in, the new topic on the horizon right now. 
why the financial institutions basically want to use chain analysis is because it helps compliance decisions with how your industry is. So it helps um, understand your various on-chain exposure um, of major ex major exchanges with, uh, I guess, detailed profiles and a complete risk evaluation of how, what they're act actually getting into. So it helps um, financial institutions mitigate potential risks uh, and also embrace the economy that is actually built on blockchains. In addition to that, it, it can help financial institutions get new clients by saying, look here, we have we're, we're using the services of chain analysis, which is um, a blockchain surveillance company, which makes sure that um, what we are doing is comprehensive and the due diligence is done on the back end. And because of this, it also gives these financial institutions um, the tools they need to fight back in case of, I guess, account takeovers, um, ransomware, and other threats which impact them and their customers. Like I said before, there are a lot of cryptocurrencies businesses also like Gemini, which use um, chain analysis. So this is basically because it helps them um, comply with cryptocurrency regulations. The space of cryptocurrency regulations is a really um, volatile wall with, with, with changes in every country coming out almost every single week. Um, so it helps them keep up to date with the various cryptocurrency regulations and also helps them um, have an account management team in place, which helps them basically tailor how their cryptocurrency exchanges work in terms of what the customer's needs are. Um, and in addition to that, obviously, I guess, um, for all government institutions, financial institutions, and cryptocurrency businesses, just having access to the people who work at chain analysis and the experts in compliance and investigations helps them build a more um, robust program. Um, so they offer a number of proprietary products, which, and I'm just going to delve on a couple of them because they have actually quite a few. Um, so one of them is Chain Analysis KYT, which is um, Chain Analysis Know Your Transaction, which basically combines blockchain intelligence um, and uses this real-time API to reduce um, your basically your manual workflows and seeing how um, the how, what 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 exact transactions are going on on the blockchain and helps you comply, helps cryptocurrency businesses comply with um, global and re local regulations as well. So this know your transaction helps um, identify high risk activity um, by detecting um, maybe addresses which are already sanctioned before, um, checking um, which what are anomalous transactions, um, darknet markets. So it helps um, continuous transaction for all types of cryptocurrency assets. And these, these uh, alerts that they'll give out also in real time, it helps, um, I guess, organizations know and prevent withdrawals from blacklisted address, freeze deposits from various hacks, scams, and ransomwares. And also um, basically, uh, configures alerts based on the particular organization's anti-money laundering policies. So because of this, it has like a very integrated case use case, which, which can be used for multiple, um, multiple verticals and uh, also helps you, also helps, I guess, insurance companies keep a full audit trail of uh, exactly what went down in a particular scenario. So this gives them, give, this gives investigators and also, um, I guess, gov governments in-depth analysis and in-depth investigations into um, how basically the flow of funds is going from maybe suspicious um, people or suspicious activities to real-world entities. Another product that they have is Chain Analysis Reactor. So Reactor is this investigation software that connects cryptocurrency transactions to real-world entities. So this enables you to basic, basically combat criminal activity on the blockchain. 
So this tool basically, it's phenomenal what this tool does. So it helps search based on any identifier that is out there. So you can enter any cryptocurrency address, learn which entity controls the wallet, discover related addresses, and automatically scans thousands of, I mean, social media forums and darknet sites associated with this address for open source intelligence. It at the same time understands real world active activity. So um, it helps you basically see um, what the scenario is and monitor um, how it is going on in real time. And also basically how future transactions and how anomalous these future transactions are to help you look at an automated pathfinding tool in the, in the past to help start an investigation. It basically also, I guess it helps governments follow the money in the sense um, you can check through an unlimited number of hops through a one particular address, see that transaction, see the social media profiles that are linked to that. And again, helps build a case in, court, in the court of law, basically. So the other products include chain analysis cryptos, chain analysis market intel. So chain analysis cryptos is, again, another tool which helps wet the cryptocurrency landscape and helps people find new business or new opportunities to invest into. I actually had like a doubt in this, like how does exactly crypto chain analysis cryptos wet new opportunities in like such a reaction driven market in the sense that um, you have an obscure um, cryptocurrency gain by over 500% in a month based on actual no use case in the real world. So for example, um, there's this cat meme coin called Pussy.Financial, which wants to rival the likes of Shiba and Doge. And this has just gained 634% in the last 30 days, based solely on the premise that it's a cat, it's the first cat meme coin. So it would be great to see like how it actually wets new these new opportunities. Um, so the business model of chain analysis um, is, is made in such a way that it helps them shield, it shields them from basically high fluctuations in prices in cryptocurrency. They are, they are a B2B SaaS company, which ensures stable revenue growth, um, which is also not connected to the market. So there are the money that chain analysis has got comes from various federal agencies like the Federal Bureau of Investigation, Drug Enforcement Agencies, um, ICE, um, NSTSA, um, FinCEN, um, the Secret Service, and more than more, most of these have signed six-figure deals with chain analysis. With obviously some um, some agencies spending more than the others. So, for example, the TSA spent forty thousand dollars in just one contract in two thousand and eighteen, while the IRS is obviously chain analysis' biggest federal partner, which spent four point one million dollars over five years. And just 3.6 million of it has come from 2018 onwards. So it's really, it's really interesting to see what, come, what product comes out next from chain analysis. I actually had a couple of questions, which would be great if they could clarify also. So basically, uh, chain analysis, the chain analysis reactor and KYT helps agencies track ransomware payments or how they um, help them identify high-risk activity, like I explained earlier. So it'd be great if you know chain analysis could come out with, like I guess, a blog or like a real-world instance in this in where they actually manage to track this. Um, obviously, after the non-disclosure agreements have finished their periods. Also, um, so some say that chain analysis. There's a lot of discussion online on forums like Reddit, etc., where they say that chain analysis is defeating the purpose of basically. The, the defeating the purpose of a system that was designed for anonymity and pseudonymity through blockchain surveillance. 
which which also reduces the interest and the market that is there for cryptocurrencies so this could this could i guess push people into other cryptocurrency platforms where chain analysis doesn't have that much of a surveillance and and is not able to track that much so it would be great to see what their viewpoint is on this discussion there's there's been a lot of talk also that chain analysis uses dusting attack so um dusting attacks are basically i guess attacks um on cryptocurrency wallets that you send tiny amounts of cryptocurrency to that wallet usually usually with the goal of having like a de-anonymization attack so because chain analysis is like a team government because of all the funding they've got it would be great to see um whether do they actually use this in practice um all because there's been no admittance on their part for any of this so fascinating yeah. stuff navid absolutely brilliant overview some really really fascinating stuff and and a really interesting moral dilemma there because what we have got with open source and with blockchains and with the, the sort of the transparency they provide is that every everything is available to everybody. So chain analysis in, in basic form is there a big data provider or a big data consumer for, for blockchain and crypto. And you can do with that information as you will. They've probably got analytical horsepower well beyond most of us in terms of what we might do in our own re- in our own research and our own laptops. And as you describe, it can be used for tracking down or helping people to get back money, ransoms, bribes, threat money, blackmail money that's gone to a cryptocurrency wallet. And for people who've been harmed and people who've been wronged in those situations, that's you would argue that's a good thing. At the same time, yes, it is surveillance. Yeah. You know, if you've got nothing to hide, then theoretically you should have nothing to worry about. But again, you know, the the spirit of how that's played out. Obviously, the first people to jump on that will be banks and the Feds because that's their job, right? Understandably, you and I aren't going to spend a million dollars on chain analysis to find the next pussy dot financial. I mean, maybe you are, and, and again. Full reminder, this is not investment advice. As funny as the first cat meme token is, again, you can use the same information to look at the number of different wallets that are investing in a particular crypto to see whether you can see patterns in pool buying or pool pumping and dumping, or whether it's truly random and there is actually an open market of people interested in a particular project. Guys, you want to come in on this one? Any other thoughts on chain analysis? Anybody want to stand up for the one side uh... or the other? It's not exactly to stand up, uh, but uh, like I was reading a paper about like Tumblr systems, which help in the anonymity of transactions. So how would that come into play when like uh, using a tool like chain analysis? Like, would that be like really hard for them to track? Um. So so I mean, there are some discussions which say like um, there are mixers, which are basically what prevent chain analysis from doing that task efficiently. But they say like at the end of it, how many times can you basically mix? your coins for every transaction do you go through the trouble of actually you know going through mixers going through i guess you're referring to the the tumble bits paper in this sense so it it heavily depends on i guess for individuals you're not going to go through mixers for every transaction that you have maybe if you're like a a criminal if it's like a criminal activity then you probably have to use multiple mixers not just one to get your your cryptocurrency out of there safely but i'm sure there must be somewhere in which an analysis will come out with like a with like a way to even detect or track that. And obviously, because this is proprietary data, there's not going to be much of knowledge out there, which is why I actually wanted them to come out with like a real world instance, you know, of how they've actually helped. But hopefully it comes out soon. 
Um, it'll all come out goal. eventually. It'll all come out. But yeah. unfortunately, that's still part of their secret source or part of their competitive advantage, right? So you've got to be a little bit careful as to who, what, what, you, what you give out to the public versus what you give out in the confidence of business discussions with the FBI, for example. Tejas, you've been waiting very patiently. And you're going to give us a project I've never heard of before. You're going to talk to us about Zoos Labs. Yeah. So um, just a little bit about me. My name is Tejas. I'm an information systems major here at CMU, and I'm actually part of the Zoos Labs team. So essentially, like um, these days, ledger-based technologies and smart contracts are really uh, bringing about a very new era in terms of peer-to-peer lending and payment platforms. Today, I'll be sharing some thoughts on Zoos Labs. It's a company I've been working on for a while, funded by a professor at CMU called uh, Professor Seth Goldstein. And essentially, it is a payment and lending platform where small businesses can uh, raise capital based on the trust that they have developed within their local communities. So let's say you own a small cafe uh, within a commerce neighborhood in your typical like small or mid-sized city, right? And as a small business, uh, typically you find it very hard to secure loans. You know, mainstream banks typically uh, don't give out very favorable loans to uh, small businesses, and especially uh, not with very good interest rates. So at Zoos Labs, what our platform allows you to do is, you know, um, issue Zoos, which are kind of like digital gift cards to your customers in exchange for capital. And these gift cards are essentially like uh, claims to future purchases that you sell to your customers. And they are backed by your reputation within the community and within the reputation that you have with your customers. But it depends on whether or not they trust your ability to honor the value of the gift cards that you issue. And it's not just that, right? So once you issue these gift cards and these customers have these gift cards that they can spend at your store, what brings it one step further is the idea of these gift cards being able to be accepted by other stores within your neighborhood uh, if they trust in your ability to back uh, the value of these gift cards. So in effect, you know, like this would allow for like a sort of community currency, right? With the trading of the debt that you issue between people, customers, businesses uh, together, a sort of creation of a community currency and uh, of sorts. And all of this is backed just by the reputation of your business. So how does this help? As transactions take place, uh, you develop uh, more and more uh, transaction history on a public ledger. And with this public ledger, uh, you can kind of create evidence of creditworthiness and evidence of uh, ability to raise capital and pay back, pay back loans on this public ledger, which can allow businesses to uh, use these data to get uh, larger actual loans from mainstream banks. So overall, that's the main premise of how Zoos Lab works and, uh, and, and what it does, right? But uh, with this in mind and with such technologies coming up, I think there are a few uh, key implications that are very interesting to be discussed. The first one I'll talk about is, is this, right? So with uh, trust and reputation-based currencies, right? And trust and reputation-based smart contracts. Um, one interesting situation is, uh, will we ever come across a, a point of time where like trust becomes like a commodity in the space, in smart contracts, in, uh, in areas like this? And if so, how will we tackle this? Uh, you know, people might want to purchase accounts, uh, purchase different... Uh, accounts and, and such, just because of the trust that they can access with this account. And uh, this can have a lot of implications. And, and the first place, one thing to consider would be, is this even a bad thing in the first place? Larger businesses that purchase or acquire companies because of the reputation that they have within their communities is something that's been going on for ages, right? Uh, that's how you enter a new market. That's a lot of companies go to market strategy. So would that be a bad thing or would that be a good thing? And uh, so, so how do we tackle this issue too? So if we feel like you know, the idea of purchasing trust in a 
using accounts in order to access capital is bad. What are ways that we can tackle this? Do we, uh, is this an issue that's more regulatory based? Should it be built into the protocols of smart contracts? And uh, how, can we, how can we go about uh, tackling this issue? So I feel this is an area that needs, uh, that should be uh, having a lot of research coming up in the future. And it's an area with a lot of potential to learn how, how these trust-based cryptocurrencies and coins can work as we go forward. Big fan of that, Tejas. Great, great introduction. And what I think you've done there is you've actually touched on a few different analogous examples of the, um, on, on one of the previous episodes of the show, we had a number of speakers from Switzerland and they talked about the Veer Bank and Veer created its own digital community token back in the early 1900s in, mm-hmm. in Switzerland. And it was, it was obviously not based on a blockchain. It obviously wasn't based on computers and cryptography, but it was the concept similar to a credit union essentially of because you're part of the union, because you're part of the community, you're then as a result more favorably looked at because the people in the community know you better. What we're then building on is the, how do we digitize? How do we create greater transparency in the information to then be able to create a trust score in the same way you have a, a credit rating? You know, the guys down at Chain Analysis or, or you know, you could get Naveed in, whoever you wanted to, to be able to do the interpretation of you know, your financials, the number of people buying from you, the number of people buying, and then as a result, redeeming the particular tokens from you are all things that you can put an objective analysis against. So you're essentially creating new ways and protocols, standards, if you will, for doing that in a business in a business way. I mean, you know, companies publish their, their accounts, people go to ratings agencies for hygiene, yeah. right? Same thing could be for financial probity. The other, the final point around buying businesses based on trust is kind of an interesting one. Trust is is absolutely something that you can quantify, depending on you know what's what's the lens of the trust. We hire in, or we get endorsements from celebrities. We spend money to get celebrities to endorse our products because there is an inferred trust in that person speaking on behalf of that brand. In the Web three that we're talking about, there is a borderless, global, transparent, digital, regular way of managing and maintaining that. So I think, I think you're onto a good thing. Definitely. And, and, and this becomes even more important when we think about the idea of using trust as a way to almost immediately raise capital, right? Almost immediately access capital, issue gift cards, issue, issue loans. And if trust can be purchased for such a thing, what kind of implications would that have? Also, another interesting point you brought up was the idea of these uh, community currencies back in Switzerland. And, and I think one, one very interesting thing that comes to my mind that I find really interesting at this point would be the idea of when creating such community currencies, right? Especially if these currencies can be tradable and, and things like that. Would we ever have a situation where uh, neighborhoods or communities can become securitized? So, um, you know, if, if, uh, if for example, we, we know that uh, the community currency in a certain area seems to be going very well. There's a lot of transaction history. There's a lot of transactions taking place. The value of the currencies are going up. Does that mean that, uh, is there a potential for this neighborhood to become a security in and of itself? Love that. And yeah, I feel like there are both pros and cons to such a thing. Uh, The first one is that, you know, capital that's typically uh, in today's world concentrated in like financial hubs in like uh, core downtown uh, neighborhoods and things like that can potentially get spread over to more regional hubs where, where there is, you know, we see transactions, we see um, growing, growing community currencies and things like that. And, and this will be very beneficial, right? Like um, we don't have a very polarized um, divide in where capital inflow into an economy, into a state comes in. And I think those are going to be really beneficial in terms of, uh, in terms of just over, uplifting like all kinds of neighborhoods within a state or within a country. But, but that being said, um, 
this other the other side of the coin could also take place where you know communities that are seen as having um that are seen as like poor securities or, or securities that may not perform as well might see further outflows of capital from their communities into you know communities that are doing well that have uh, that that uh, show on public ledgers that they are they're they're uh, improving and things like that so yeah what are the there's so many implications the social implications you know economic and potentially even political implications that can come from that and and, and so yeah i see a very very wide scope of research that uh, can be conducted in this area Love that. I mean, there's definitely going to be legal considerations around what represents security. What how, how does how does that security fluctuate? If there's an individual bad actor within that particular community, does the whole community suffer? But I mean, if you can fractionalize a security, sure, you can aggregate one too. And you know, a lot of a lot of the the if anyone who's watched The Big Short, a lot of the problem there was that you were grouping up particular bundles of loans and you were selling them as a security. So all we're saying here is let's do that in a more community-focused, democratic kind of way. And the access to capital is driven purely from who in the community wants to fund it, how much transparency, how, how much visibility is there on metrics that matter. And you know, providing that's, that, that's transparent and easy to, to get into, you could have investors from Korea, from Australia, from Brazil, from anywhere. Right? You can, you've got a completely open market, which I think is super interesting. Guys, anyone else want to come in on this one before we go over to the next speaker? Yeah, I had a question for Tejas. So, uh, I pardon me if you've already answered this, but you were mentioning the idea sort of started out as, let's say, a bank, uh, a small business owner comes to a bank, right, to ask for a loan, and because the person doesn't have any trust or like uh, financial security behind it, they don't get the loan. So, I was wondering how, in the platform that you're mentioning, where you have trust based on communities and reputation that you stake for it. If a new player enters the system, right? Would you? Uh, how do you declare trust or reputation for a new player? Because I would assume it begins with zero, right? Definitely. So um, the idea here is is kind of like uh, it would start with having a business be in a community for a while. So um, okay, if a new player were to come in, I think there are a couple of different ways in which they could gain trust. One could be through being endorsed by other players within the system that already have trust and other players that are willing to back the currency that uh, they're issuing. So that would be the main way if you're a brand new player entering the system. And uh, I mean, there are there are other options too, like instead of issuing trust as individual businesses, issuing gift cards as individual businesses, what if um, people come together as pooled businesses, a group of businesses together and issue a gift card, you know, maybe a street of, of businesses and things like that. And 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 that is, that is probably the go-to strategy for newer businesses without any reputation at all entering the market. But yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, basically the community giving trust to a business staking in it essentially. Right, so initially once once the initial trust is has been developed or has been uh, taken on as a proxy from another business, for example, uh, you know, public ledger data as transactions take place mm-hmm. and as the business honors its gift card, uh, the, the, the zoos that it issues, that's when trust is developed and more creditworthiness is developed on and on. And uh, so that's 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 how uh, it will progress from that point onwards. Nice one, guys. Good yeah, questions. Awesome. And also, shout to Professor Seth for bringing us all together. He's you know, the original focal point for bringing the Carnegie Mellon blockchain family together. So shout to Professor Seth. Uh, and I'm really excited to see the good work that you're continuing to do in the community and, and with this particular project. Lev, over to you. Thanks for waiting patiently. You want to talk to us about Mina? Sure. So... Uh, hi, my name is Lev. Uh, I'm an undergrad at Carnegie Mellon studying computer engineering and CS. And 
Mina is maybe like an antithesis in a way to chain analysis, as far as we know, uh, with like current map photography. And what it is, it's a uh, layer one, like a new blockchain. So like Ethereum, Bitcoin, Cardano, uh, they're all layer ones, but it's based off of a different technology in how it checks the state of the whole blockchain. So if you get, if anybody's familiar with like UTXO, it's like how Bitcoin works, where it checks that like successive transactions are applied correctly. What Mina relies on is a technology called the ZK Snark. And ZK Snarks are something coming out of the cryptography world, which allow you to verify that some computation was done without revealing entirely what the computation was done on. So like you can imagine two people, um, Alice and Bob, and it can verify that Bob actually has $100 that he can give to Alice without revealing that Bob is giving $100 to Alice. Uh, and basically working from there, what Mina does is that it has this state of the blockchain, which basically you can think of it like, oh, Bob has $100, Alice has $200. And that entire state is bundled up into one proof. So one thing proving that Alice has 200 and Bob has 100 without revealing that Alice actually has 200 and Bob actually has 100. And what that actually allows for is when you update the blockchain, so let's say Alice wants to send some money to Bob, Alice can now send money to Bob without revealing that she is sending money to Bob to anybody. And then Bob would receive money, his balance would increase, but Bob would also not know how much money Alice actually has left over after. So it's entirely privacy focused and some other like things that fall out of it is that the blockchain state doesn't increase in size. So like the Bitcoin blockchain, like the ledger itself, like if you want to download the whole thing, it grows every single day. It's like gigabytes and gigabytes upon gigabytes now. But because you're just working with some fancy cryptography, you can keep the blockchain size down to like 22 kilobytes. So this whole idea of the trilemma in blockchain, which is often talked about, it's almost a meme at this point. And the idea is basically that you have to trade off either security, decentralization, or throughput, like how fast the chain can run uh, for the common blockchain model. So like Bitcoin is very decentralized and very secure, but it's not able to process a lot of transactions. Uh, you can have other blockchains that are not very decentralized, but can process a lot of transactions. The whole idea here is that you can actually kind of overcome the trilemma because you can process a lot of transactions at once and you don't have to have a lot of power to process it. So it can be very decentralized just because your whole state is very small and it's very secure because mathematically you're not revealing any, anything to anyone. Uh, and on top of that, there's some very cool applications that fall out of this. What you can do is you can verify that you can verify website data on chain, meaning that like, let's say you want to prove that like at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday, Google, like the New York Times had a certain article up there. You can do that using Mina by basically just submitting, by basically just submitting what the page looked like on Tuesday. And yeah, there's a lot of other applications that fall out of this. You can verify that your credit score meets a certain potential without actually revealing anything about your credit score. It can change the way we interact with blockchain just because everything becomes private, but it also allows you to do more things. I love the way you describe it, sort of the antithesis of the kind of open public ledger. Not right. to say that you can't use zero knowledge technology in and around public ledgers at the same time, but essentially it's you're, you're creating a very interesting black box. And as long as everybody right. trusts 
in how the black box works. And this is the, this is part of the, the challenge, I think, in adoption is as long as everybody is able to audit the smart contract or the cryptography or the approach or the workflow that you create using that zero knowledge, as long as everybody agrees that that's incorruptible and that we all agree to the rules of the black box, we can all continue to use the black box. You know, like being able to validate that I'm of a certain age or able to enter into a, a bar, a restaurant, nightclub, whatever it is, without anybody knowing my address, you know, without physically showing my, my digital ID or my physical ID, sorry, in front of anybody. The same thing works with health credentials. You know, some of some of that is not always based on zero knowledge technology, but trying to obfuscate information that other people don't need to see, which right. I think there is going to be increasing demand for. Yeah, no, it's it's incredible, and it can actually integrate really well with current public ledgers like Ethereum, because you can submit proofs of what a certain website looked like at a certain time, and then that can be used on Ethereum to process some. So you can like submit a proof that like Bitcoin's price is like $500 at a certain time. And then Ethereum blockchain can use that to, I don't know, like process some sort of like betting uh, for like a betting website or something like that. Nice, nice. Yeah. Guys, yeah. any yeah. other thoughts? Yeah, yeah. come on in the yeah. video. A couple of months back only, I think Polygon, which is like a scaling solution for Ethereum, also um, just integrated um, Mina into it. So um, because of this integration, basically, I mean, obviously it helps them become more privacy preserving, but also because it's just, I think, like you said, 22 KB is that full, um, I think blockchain size and because it's fixed, I think it ha it helps more average. It helps like the average user just run like a full node just from your smartphone. So in terms of like, I guess, scalability, it is surely like the future and also because of the privacy preserving nature that it has. So yeah, I'm like really excited to see what comes out of me. Yeah. Well. Mehul, you've been waiting patiently until the very end sat with, I think, the most intricate background of anyone who's been on this episode, on this show so far. You've got some of the quantum physics, you've got some of the maths going on behind you. You're here to talk about Boba, right? Yeah, uh, very antithetical to all the maths behind me. The project I'm talking about is uh, called Boba. So uh, I think, Anthony, you were mentioning it quite a few times and also Lev as well. So you're mentioning uh, this thing called layer one, right? And what I'm talking about Boba is a layer two scaling solution. So when we talk about layer ones, we talk about like basic blockchains and stuff. So we're talking about Ethereum, we're talking about Bitcoin, we're talking about Cardano, we're talking about Solana, right? And then when we talk about layer two, it's essentially just something built on top of that. And uh, as Abhishek was mentioning from the very start, right? Uh, with the problem with Ethereum that all of us suffer through is how slow it is and how much the gas fees are. And so one, this is where layer two come, uh, come into play. So if you think about like the theoretical limit of the transactions on Ethereum, it's 16 to 15 transactions per second. And if you talk about Bitcoin, which I'm sure all of us uh, can talk a lot of smack about, that's eight transactions per second. And when you compare that to like traditional finance, uh, if you talk like a Visa or MasterCard, we're dealing with 300,000 transactions per second or like 200,000 transactions per second. So there's a big divide there, right? And this is where uh, layer two platforms like Boba come into play. So what they do is they club a bunch of transactions together so that you can process them all at once. And it is in the end verified by the blockchain itself. But because you club it together and you do some fancy math there, it is uh, almost, uh, I think Boba specifically sees about 1,000x improvement. So it'll be like a thousand transactions per second. And not only that, the gas fees is insanely lower now, right? 
uh so that's where it comes into play and this i think uh would define uh the future of cryptocurrency and uh crypto systems in general because now as we're sort of seeing this uh concept where things are scaling up right and we want to reach the traditional finance level so that there is no other excuse other than to use cryptocurrency because it's better right and for that we need to scale it all the way up there so when it comes to layer 2 platforms we have a bunch of them uh so there's optimism there's arbitrum and uh these are the optimistic platforms then there's boba right boba works uh, the name was obviously inspired by like the recent food slash drink craze uh, that is associated with crypto it's like the only fun loving i guess layer 2 platform solution and so the i i've been working with them so far and the the real appeal to me here is that uh when you talk about other layer 2 scaling solutions uh they have this weird wait period so if you talk about like uh optimism right you have to wait 7 days uh before you get stuff off from layer 2 to layer 1 and with boba you now have fast exit so you can do that almost instantly because of the liquidity pools on uh both the layers uh layer 1 and layer 2 and it's the only uh layer 2 platform with its own token that can be used for governance as well so the token's called boba if you've heard of like the omisego project the omg project boba was basically just born out of a team based of that now that's completely changed so uh anyone taking omg right now uh will receive uh equivalent amount of boba once the tokens launch about last uh, month or so when we had like a uh, main the main at conference in new york and uh, which uh, every token went down and again uh, no investment advice i would even ever no nowhere go far, uh, close to that but when every token was down omg was the only one going up because boba had formally launched that's a lot of fun and uh, i i think the way i see it it's uh, just defining the future we have nfts uh, being a big thing now right and uh, the way on layer 2 platforms like boba is that nfts are cheaper to mint they're cheaper to access and send back and forth so all of these things are now possible the way uh, i got introduced to the project is i'm a junior studying computer science at carnegie mellon and i just contacted like the professor who was running this this is run by stanford professors uh, and like at carnegie mellon i think everyone on the call would agree we kind of had a belief that stanford didn't exist until uh, we went there and i i still not sure if it exists but uh, the professor that i met there definitely does exist so uh, so it's really uh, ac- uh, there's a lot of academic backing and uh, that's why i'm really attracted to the project nice love that the the fun the fun loving layer to that's founded by professors. I mean it's this is the sort of stuff that you get in the blockchain scene that is exactly the reason why I love doing these shows is because they surface the stories, the people, the interest, the nonsense sometimes, but these are the sorts of reasons why we get into this scene, why we delve into it. So Mahul, thank you so much for the introduction. I'm definitely going to go check that out as as with a lot of the other things that have come up on the show today. Guys, anyone out there listening, do not sleep on blockchain in Pittsburgh. 
it's not just known for ice hockey and steel. There's a lot of smart, bright people coming out of the scene. Shout out to Professor Seth. Shout also to Ishkan Aurora for bringing us together as well. And guys, good luck with your continued studies. Good luck with your continued projects. And thanks again for being on the show. Thanks again for listening to the Blockchain Won't Save the World podcast. As always, opinions in this episode are mine and those of my guests alone. If you want to find out more, please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Check out some of the other episodes on the Blockchain Won't Save the World podcast and check out the YouTube channel also called Blockchain Won't Save the World. Stay safe out there.